Well, good morning, since we're all here, at least those of us who are here, we can uh, begin this morning. I'll open us in prayer. Uh, I'll actually begin the prayer from Psalm 65, just the first four verses of it. It will uh, hopefully be a good lead into what we're doing this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 9. So let's pray together. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevailed against me, you atoned for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And Father, it is good for us to be here. We pray that as we Look at what your servant Moses wrote ages ago, that we ourselves would be convicted of our own sin, and that we would come to understand the magnitude of your grace in drawing us into your courts. We truly are among the blessed, and we pray that you would extend that blessing to us again this morning, and you would multiply it, that we might understand what is in your word, and that we might live according to it. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, once again, um, I have provided handouts. And what I gave you primarily uh, is simply my translation of the text, which I hope doesn't differ a whole lot from any other major translation. Uh, But you might notice a couple minor uh, alterations, perhaps. But the big advantage to it, I think, is... um, the layout of the text. It's not in paragraph form. And the reason I did this and highlighted and underlined and made bold what I did was simply to draw your eyes to themes in the text. Again, uh, last week we got cut off, uh, cut short. We didn't make it through everything. And I'm not sure we would have made it anyway, but I have an excuse this time. So, I mentioned that uh, simply as part of our review. We looked last week at verses 6 to 14. And a couple of things worth mentioning is that this is the third of the three arguments Moses is taking to bring Israel to a point of humility. Again, the first one, God did not choose Israel because she was superior to any other nation. The second one is God, when he blesses Israel in the land, their success will not be because of their power or their wisdom or anything like that. It is God's blessing, not their industriousness. And the third one is God will give Israel the land and not because of her righteousness. So if we go back again to Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, this is the main point Moses is making in this chapter and in chapter 10. So Deuteronomy 9, verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Moses moves on in verses 7 to 14 to lay out the case, How do I know that you are stubborn? And he centers his efforts on The incident at Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai, where they picked up uh, the practice of idolatry or engaged in the practice. And there are just a few notes I want to draw your attention to 
that are uh, important because they carry over into what we look at this week starting in verse 15. In verse 10, sorry, verse 9, Moses said, When I ascended the mount to take the tablets of stone, and then he qualifies what he means by that. These are the tablets of the covenant. He says the same thing. He calls them the same thing in verse 11. They are the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. And in between those two, he gives them a different designation. They are the two tablets of stone, which were being written upon by the finger of God. And so last week we simply said that this is a legal contract. It is a covenant, just like a marriage is a legal contract. But there is a strongly personal element to it. A marriage contract, by its nature, implies very strong and intimate personal relationships. It's made all the more so when it receives the signatures that it does. So these tablets represent the intimacy between Yahweh and the people Israel, as well as a legal contract binding the Lord and his people together. Moses draws out the fact as well in verse 9 that he spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain fasting. And what we looked at last week is it appears, according to Exodus, that what Moses is receiving during those 40 days are instructions for how to build the tabernacle. And we cannot overestimate the personal element that the tabernacle itself represented. That was God's dwelling among the people of Israel. There are certain ways God has to be approached, but the fact that a holy God can be approached is remarkable. And Moses is receiving that, uh, Moses is receiving those instructions. Uh, and that tabernacle, again, is the indication that the Lord is personally traveling with Israel in the wilderness, will lead them into the promised land. And it's also the place where Israel could worship God and enjoy his goodness. So I'm going to read uh, just a few verses here from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 4. This is what the tabernacle represented in a pale form in, compared, in comparison to the temple, but nonetheless, it really did represent it. So Psalm 63, verses 1 to 4. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Particularly fitting, giving their wilderness John, uh, wanderings. Verse 2, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. That is what the tabernacle was supposed to conjure up in the Israelite worshiper. And as Moses is receiving the instructions for how Israel can do just that, we pick up in our text in verse, uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought up from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone 
or loosen your grip on me that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. That's where we ended last week. And that closes off the first scene with Moses on the mountain. The Lord sends him back down because Israel has committed sin by making the golden calf. So let's go now, verses 15 and 16, picking up uh, for this week. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made for yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So what we begin to see here is Moses' reaction to Israel's infidelity. Moses not only descends in obedience, he goes down the mountain in obedience, but he also goes down the mountain as a reflection of God's own character. A couple of things to point out. Moses was told to descend quickly because the Israelites had quickly turned aside from the way. Verse 12, the Lord says to Moses, Rise, go down quickly from here, because your people whom you brought up from Egypt have, uh, are spoiled. They have turned aside quickly from the way I have commanded them. The swiftness of the people's rebellion is met with the swiftness of the Lord's response. That's number one. Moses follows and acts quickly himself. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, Moses is pictured of, as turning around immediately and descending the mountain. The second thing, Moses agrees with God's assessment of what Israel has done and what the sin itself is. But Moses inverts the lines. And here I have it in color code for you on the handout. Verse 12, the Lord tells Moses, they have turned aside quickly from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten image. But when Moses recounts the story of his interaction with Israel once he is at the bottom of the mountain, verse 16, And I saw, and behold, you had sinned against Yahweh your God. You made for yourselves a calf of molten image. You turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord commanded you. Now you will notice that Moses inverts the lines. When the Lord says it, he says they've turned aside quickly, that is, they have made themselves a molten image. Moses inverts it and he says, You made a molten image. You turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. And what happens with that inversion is it highlights the center of it. The problem, the, the issue that they're facing, or that the Lord has a grudge against Israel for, is the image. That is the central thing that Moses is focusing their attention on. Of all of the things he could have pinned their rebellion on, he pins it on this one thing. You made yourselves an idol. The fact of the idol is a significant problem. They have turned aside and made an image. The tone of the text, as Moses has it in verse 16 is quite remarkable. And I saw, and behold, I don't know how many of your translations have, and behold. 
The NIV might, I don't know, um, but they should. A lot of times that word can be skipped over in translation because it's just kind of a filler word. But most of the time that word is pointing towards um, a surprise almost. It's like a, and listen to this, or and look at that. The, the tone of the text in, in Moses' voice, as it were, is how could you? I was up on the mountain receiving instructions for how you could dwell with a holy God, and as I'm receiving instructions that no one else in the history of the world has ever received, and you as a people were redeemed from Egypt, which has never happened. You know, going back chapters, no one on the whole face of the earth has had the Lord work for them the way you have had it. And before I get to the courthouse with the marriage contracts in hand, you've already committed spiritual adultery. How could you? That's, that's the tone that Moses has. And so within less than 40 days of their matrimony, Israel's committed spiritual adultery, and Moses goes down the mountain, and he gives rapid-fire succession verbs in verses 17 and 18. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands, and broke them before your eyes. I grasped them, I threw them, I shattered them, all in a reaction of judgment. And it's worth saying that Moses doesn't just lose, he's not throwing a fit. Um, This isn't just Moses purely losing his temper. Shattering the tablets is significant in the way Moses presents it. Remember, these tablets are the marriage contract between the Lord and his people. By shattering those tablets, he is basically saying, your marriage is annulled. You have committed spiritual adultery. By all rights, this covenant is broken. It is done. It's off. The contract is null and void. It does not hold anymore. And that is exactly why I have highlighted what I did earlier on in the text. The tablets of the stone, the tablets of the covenant, that marriage contract. And then after that, two tablets of stone being written upon with the finger of God. The Lord himself signed them, as it were. And then again, two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, verse 11. He's reminding Israel the significance of these two tablets. This is the marriage contract between you and the Lord. And as Moses shatters them, it is his way of symbolically representing the covenant is off. Now, if you are Israel, is that a problem? Is it, okay, we'll just go our separate ways? Well, probably not. I mean, the Lord doesn't take it that way. Rather, the Lord takes it as, let go of me that I may exterminate them and blot their names out from under heaven. That's a problem. Israel is in the wilderness, being sustained by a river flowing out of a rock for water, being sustained by the manna that the Lord provides every morning, well, six days a week, enough for the seventh day on the sixth day. And they have just committed adultery. We've heard the phrase, don't bite the hand that feeds you. 
Well, they've, they've tried very hard to bite that hand. Nevertheless, Moses adds one more action, verse 18. And I prostrated myself before the Lord. Or, I lay prostrate before the Lord as before 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of the sin that you had committed in doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Moses is quick to point out this time what drove him to fasting was not holy joy and anticipation at receiving the Lord's instructions the first 40 days. Now his 40 days and nights of fasting is from fearful grief and urgent intercession. Verse 19, I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. The fact that Moses is upheld for 40 days and 40 nights, that's encouraging, right? We can make it a few days without water and many more without food, but Moses was being upheld by the Lord as he received the instructions. He is being upheld as he acts as the intercessor for Israel. In the same way, he's being upheld. The Lord not only provided Moses as an intercessor for the people, he sustained him as an intercessor for the people after their adultery. Now, that shows mercy. That shows tremendous grace. Moses illustrates Israel's need for an intercessor. In their sin, Israel has created a separation from God, and the way it's drawn out here is just absolutely remarkable. Let me alone that I might destroy them. Do you think the Lord will hear the prayer if the people were to plead for themselves? No, he's, he's bent on destroying them. It requires someone else to stand in the breach between Israel and the Lord. They have just committed the ultimate sin, which is spiritual adultery, and that deserves the ultimate consequence. That's illustrated by the smashed tablets. But what Israel needs is someone who has not been engaged in the sin, someone who has already been accepted by the Lord, and that is the only person who can effectually intercede for them. Someone who is untainted from sin and someone whom the Lord has accepted. We are absolutely no different. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 to 28. There, there are a lot of different places, actually, we could go in Hebrews. This could launch us into a study of the whole book. Um, but we'll just focus on a few verses here. Hebrews 7, verse 25 and following. Consequently, he, which is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, including Moses, we might add. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Our sin requires the constant intercession of Christ, because in sin we tend to separate ourselves from a holy God. And if we as Christians do not first and foremost understand ourselves as sinners, we will find ourselves standing at the foot of a mountain, burning because of the consuming fire that stands atop of it. You'll remember back in chapter 9, verse 3, perhaps, the way the Lord presents himself in relation to his enemies. Moses says, Know therefore today that he who goes before you is a consuming fire. Well, that consuming fire is given image to here in verse 15. Now the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenants were in my hand. That consuming fire is at a distance right until it isn't. We have a great need to rely on our intercessor, and like Christ's, Moses' intercession turns out to be successful, the end of verse 19. But the Lord listened to me that time also. He hasn't mentioned any other time he's interceded for Israel in the text of Deuteronomy, I think he's simply making the rhetorical point, Oh, Israel, you remember your history. You remember I repeatedly had to intercede for you. Uh, And I think he just draws that out to make that point. Because remember his goal. Humility. He's aiming for humility for the people. There is nothing that makes us more humble than a recognition of our sin. And we're not supposed to take light of that. We're not supposed to ever jettison the idea. We're not supposed to rise above it. We're not supposed to think of ourselves as saints as opposed to being sinners. The remarkable thing about the apostle calling us saints is that we're we're called saints in spite of our sin because of the grace of God that is there. And so Moses is aiming for humility. And in both cases, in Christ and in Moses, God does appoint one to intercede. We, we saw that there was already a hint of that last week, right? So going back up real quickly into verse 12, the Lord tells Moses, Rise, descend quickly from here, because your people, who you brought up from Egypt, and again, the point of that isn't merely the Lord to separate himself from Israel, though he kind of does that too, is to show Moses that he has a responsibility for these people. And that responsibility doesn't intercede when they transgress the covenant. So there's a little subtlety going on right there that Moses is supposed to intercede. And in fact, Moses does intercede. And what's interesting is Deuteronomy fudges the chronology. If we were to go back real quick to Exodus 32, 
we would see that Moses' intercession for the people doesn't come after he smashes the tablets. It comes before he smashes the tablets. So Moses fudges that chronology to make a theological point. So back in Exodus 32, there's no mention of a burning mountain in Exodus 32. Instead, Moses' shattering of the tablets, that in Exodus is the illustration of the Lord's anger. So Exodus 32, starting in verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God. Now let's go back up into verse 10, because that that gives us the same footing as Deuteronomy. So uh, Exodus 32, verse 10, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I might make a great nation of you. Remember that from Deuteronomy. But here it changes. Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then we go to verse 19. And as soon as Moses came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Why does Moses change the chronology? I think it's for this reason. In Exodus, Moses' anger and his shattering the tablets is the reflection of the Lord's anger. That's the way the text presents it. In Deuteronomy, the Lord's anger is represented by the burning mountain. Moses' shattering the tablets then becomes the central act. And what that act represents is the nullification of the covenant. Though, actually, when Moses shatters the tablets, he knows the Lord has a different stance towards the people. But in Deuteronomy, the way he presents it, it leaves the people wondering, how's it going to end? So he does it for rhetorical effect, but also for theological point. The rhetorical effect is, how's the story going to end? Well, they know because they're still alive. But the theological point is, by all rights, the covenant should have been annulled. That has big implications. I'll give you one implication. And that implication as relates to marriage. Again, the covenant contract was a legal contract, but it's also a legal contract in which persons, the Lord and Israel, are united together. They become the Lord and his people, just as it becomes a man and his wife. There are strong correlations between those two things. Moses is shattering the tablets, reveals the same as Jesus would say, 
marriage can rightly be annulled for infidelity. Legally, that's permissible. But the character of God is such that he is still inclined towards reconciliation. So strongly that he had provided Moses as an intercessor before Israel ever went astray. The Lord's inclination to forgive his people is so strong that he provokes Moses to intercede for the people when they have gone astray. And the Lord himself is so gracious that he welcomes back his people who have gone astray. The marital union is a reflection of Christ's unbreakable relationship to the church. Marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship. And that is so strong that Paul's instructions to widows, and we can turn over to 1 Corinthians 7 here. Paul's instructions to widows is what it is, I think, largely, because he sees the way God operates. And that connection is so strong that even when her husband dies, it is preferable that the widow remain single rather than remarry. Now again, that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll, we'll read just a couple verses here, and, but then I'll, I'll qualify it after that. So 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but to each his own gift from God, of one kind and one another, which is he wishes all would be single um, because of the, the times, he says, and it allows one to devote themselves to the Lord in a unique way. So there's a, a superiority, he would argue, to singleness, period, but to each his own gift. Verse 8, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But now he gives a concession. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So as a concession of those who cannot exercise self-control, I, of course, am one of them. I'm married. Um, I don't have that gift. Uh, He says it is better to marry than to burn. But now here in verse 10, we get a little bit more. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, a perfect reflection of what's going on in Deuteronomy. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, but not the Lord, which is simply to say the Lord did not directly speak to this, but again, he's going off of the character of the Lord, as seen even in Deuteronomy, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, as Israel certainly acted, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. But if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And what I find remarkable is that Paul gives no exception for marital infidelity in 1 Corinthians 7. Jesus does do that as he's uh, engaging with the Pharisees. But Paul doesn't mention it. Why is that? Well, Paul, being the good Jew that he is, is heavily steeped in the Old Testament, and he sees what goes on in Deuteronomy. And he sees the character of the Lord, which is, if in any way possible, reconciliation. 
That's the character of the Lord. Even though, legally, it's not required of him. He doesn't have to do that. The covenant's been broken. It's been annulled. But, the Lord's mercy is more. And so, he has provided Moses. I'll pause right there. Any thoughts or questions over what we've covered so far this morning? Okay. Yep. Thank you. I like what you brought up that God provided the intercessors before the sin. If you couldn't hear, she just said that um, worthy note is God provided the intercessor before the sin. Thanks, Becky. Okay. Then we'll move on. Uh, Deuteronomy 9. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know what's funny? Um, the, the question is, when, when did Moses fast? Um, yes, it was on the mountain. Um, I actually wrote out, because I, I do this sort of thing, um, partly as my own study and so I can get it clear, On Excel sheet, I wrote out the way Exodus provides uh, the chronology and the way he recounts it in Deuteronomy. I almost gave that to you as a handout, but it's just too jumbled. Um, I couldn't make it any... I couldn't make it helpfully clear, I don't think, without spending a good deal of time on that alone, and I wasn't going to do that. It appears as though Exodus gives us the chronology we should go to. Moses, in Deuteronomy, takes great liberty with what that chronology is, as does, by the way, First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. Joshua itself and Judges seems to be a little fudgy, but not quite as much. Um, he, he tampers with the chronology to bring out theological points. He's trying to run themes together, and in order to keep those themes together, he, he changes the chronology a little bit. So if you want to know what the chronology is best, I would go back to Exodus. And the second time Moses seems to fast isn't only in relation to Israel's sin, but also to the renewal of the covenant, which comes in Exodus 34. So, so as I understand it, the rough chronology is this. Moses spends 40 days and nights on the mountain fasting, receiving instructions for the tabernacle. He's commanded to descend. He goes down, uh, or he, sorry, he intercedes. The Lord says, okay, I won't destroy them. Moses goes down, smashes the tablets, um, smashes the calf and all that sort of thing, uh, executes judgment on Israel, intercedes with the Lord in the tabernacle of meeting, in the tent of meeting, which is not the tabernacle, it's a different tent. The Lord says, you go, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, please no, don't send us away without your presence. And the Lord says, fine, bring up two tablets, I'll renew the covenant Moses goes back up the mountain, fasts again for another 40 days and nights as he receives the second set of tablets, but it appears as though his intercession for Israel spans a great deal of time. And even when he is on the mountain getting the renewed tablets, it's as though his intercession continues as you read Exodus, which again, the connections between that and Christ in Hebrews is really stunning. Uh, the, Moses continually interceded for Israel at Sinai 
and countless times throughout the desert in the next 40 years. Um, so he lived and repeatedly, we might say constantly, made intercession on behalf of Israel as Christ does for us. So that's the best I can do with the chronology. Okay. Anything else? All right. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 20. As, uh, as someone brought up last week, Aaron gets singled out here for special treatment. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Uh, first, Aaron was more intimately acquainted with the Lord's power and goodness, uh, more so than any other Israelite besides Moses. Aaron was part of the inner circle, you might say. He was in Pharaoh's court and did wonders before Pharaoh himself. He functioned as Moses' spokesman on behalf of the Lord in the Egyptian court and no doubt beyond. He saw what the Lord could do more closely than any other Israelite. He should have rebuked the rabble rather than consented to making the golden calf for them. It is also worth noting the fact that Moses singles him out is not all that different from the Lord singling out Peter after the crucifixion. All of the disciples forsook Christ. Peter rebuked him in a unique way, and that sin is amplified by the fact that Peter was one of the intimate three with Christ. He was in the inner circle. And so Jesus singles him out for special treatment after his resurrection as a way to restore him. And Moses singles Aaron out here, not only in unique treatment for judgment, but also in reconciliation, which is, I did pray for Aaron at that time as well. However, it is kind of remarkable that the Lord doesn't give any verdict. Uh, Moses doesn't recount that, and the Lord forgave him also. And in fact, in chapter 10, Moses is going to relate Aaron's death to the sin of the golden calf. Uh, If you are familiar with the text of Numbers, His sin is also connected to what goes on at the waters of Meribah when Moses strikes the rock. Aaron and Moses receive the death sentence there as well. But no doubt, uh, Aaron's sin there is typical of his repeated transgressions against the Lord. And this here is kind of the ultimate example of that again. The second thing worth saying is that his role in making the idol and functioning as priest for Israel in regard to that golden calf was a very public display of his prominence and it anticipated his future role as Israel's high priest. Uh, But the fact that his sin was very public, it deserves very public treatment in his destruction as well. And so um, even Aaron uh, is in some measure forgiven. uh, But the fact that Moses' intercession is not only good for the nation of Israel, but good for Israel's high priest. Think about that. Israel's high priest needed the intercession of someone who exceeded even him. And that fact that that Aaron and his line was the succession of high priests shows the magnitude, again, of God's mercy and grace, but it also shows the tremendous power 
of Moses and his prayer. So Amos 3, 7, I'll just read it to you. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Why tell Moses that he is about to destroy the people and about to destroy Aaron? So that he can pray. So that he can intercede on their behalf. That opened the door for Moses. And it was heard in large part because of Moses' own character and his own friendship with God. We're going to look at James 5 real quick. And God willing, we'll be back to this text before the day is closed. James 5, verse 16. James five sixteen. Therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Why relate those two things together? I think that is because it is good to have the body interceding for us, not Christ too, Christ Christ intercedes and his intercession is the ultimate, but the rest of the body interceding on behalf of the one who has sinned. And if that seems like a stretch, just go up a verse, two verses. Let's start in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that he may be healed. That prayer of confess your sins to one another and pray for one another is in the context of the prayers of the righteous are powerful in their working, which is a theme from James 4 that we will look at, frankly, next week probably. Um, But all that to say... That sin that we engage in has more effect than we might want to give it credit for. And not only does Scripture provide for us the assurance of Christ's intercession, which is a successful, a successful intercession, it also commends to us the practice of praying for one another in the light of confession. Because as we pray for one another, that gives tangible expression to Christ's intercession for us. How, how can I, as one who has just sinned or been engaged in this sin, have the confidence that Christ is truly interceding for me? Well, his people who reflect his character are interceding on your behalf as well, praying for your forgiveness and restoration to the Lord. And so Moses sets the example for us as well as for Christ right off the bat here in Deuteronomy and praying for Israel and praying for Aaron himself. Let's move on here. Uh, Moses' friendship with the Lord then also causes him to uh, act on Israel's behalf, believe it or not, but also in judgment on their behalf. Deuteronomy 
9, verse 21. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. (laughs) Um, Worth mentioning that the water ran down from the mountain because, again, the Lord was miraculously providing this water for them. And so it creates a little bit of an irony. Uh, A couple of things happen here. First, it's ironic that you would make the golden calf so close to the waters that you can see somehow coming out of a rock on the side of a mountain. Uh, Springs usually do not originate. Um, and rivers, brooks, do not originate on top of a mountain. They originate at the bottom. Um, that's where the water gathers. So by mentioning it this way, Moses is pointing to the irony and the atrocity of Israel's sin. But he's also saying two other things. First, the power of God far exceeds the idol. Do you think an idol could do this? So we're going to dispose of it within the stream of the Lord's power. And the second thing is the Lord, in his mercy and grace, washes that sin downstream, as it were. So Moses, in doing this, um, does some tremendous things on Israel's behalf. It is an act of judgment. It's also an act of displaying the Lord's grace. And if you're wondering about the idol, why destroy it the way he did? Well, it's almost certainly wood a wooden object overlaid with gold so it can legitimately burn, melts down the gold, but then the gold is this pile of molten lava. It cools and you crush it um, and you grind it small and you toss it into the river, just kind of saying he thoroughly destroyed it. Verse 22, Moses gives a parenthetical statement and now he is expanding Israel's rebellion. So uh, verses 22 to 24, we'll just read all of these here. At Terabah also, and at Massah, and at Kibrith Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. That is not Moses just being bitter though no doubt uh, he is venting some of that. But it's a parenthetical note to remind Israel, again, the thesis. The Lord is not giving you the land because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Israel's sin at Sinai was not a one-time event. It had... um, It was the pinnacle display of Israel's tendency towards rebellion. That's why he dwells on it as long as he does. But so that Israel can't say, well, we're better than that now. Moses says, no, you're not. In 40 years has not helped you. And not only that, that's what your character was from the day I knew you. So real quickly here, I I provided this in your notes, the very last page. Uh, Tibera comes from Numbers 11, verses 1 to 3. Israel is grumbling about misfortunes. Uh, Those misfortunes are never specifically named, but the text makes a point to not naming the misfortunes they complain about. It's as if to say, Israel had nothing to complain about. She's just complaining. Um, We all all understand that, right? Um, As children and as adults, we sometimes complain when we really have nothing to complain about. We just want to gripe. 
Now that's what Israel is doing there in Numbers 11. At Massah, Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7, Israel is thirsty and they quarrel with Moses in longing for Egypt. And so they distrust the Lord and test God, saying, Can he provide for us or not? And of course he does. Uh, Kibroth Hatava is Numbers 11, verses 4 to 35, takes a long section of text. Israel craves meat and longs for Egypt. God sends quail, and while the food is still in their mouths, he sends a plague and strikes them down. The first and the last, Tabera and Kibroth Hatava, they include judgment. The first time there is a burning that is kindled among the people and it destroys many on the outer edges of the camp. In Numbers 11, there is a plague. The middle one, Exodus 17, highlights God's grace and patience. He does not react against the people for being tested. He just simply passes the test with flying colors and he patiently lets Israel go on their way, hoping they have learned their lesson. The last two, again, Exodus 17 and Numbers 11, Massah and Kivroth include God's provision for the people. God has not forsaken them, but they still tend to distrust the Lord. And that is what makes the last case he mentions in Deuteronomy 9, verse 23, uh, Kadesh Barnea, that is the worst of all. So uh, Deuteronomy 9, 23. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. It is in the mouth of the Israelites, Kadesh Barnea, that they say, No, the Lord brought us up to destroy us. The Anakim are too great. We cannot take the land. And the fact that they disbelieve the Lord after all his patience, after all his mercy, after all his provision, that makes Kadesh Barnea the worst of all of these other sins because it degrades God's very character. He is the reliable and trustworthy God. So Moses concludes his assessment of the people, verse 24. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. That's the third and the final time in chapter 9 that Moses calls the people rebellious. He says it in in verse 7, verse 23, and verse 24. It could also be translated obstinate. Now remember, this is the second generation hearing this. It's not the generation primarily who was there in Exodus 17 and Numbers 11 or the sin of the golden calf. This is mostly their children. Moses still attributes the sin to them, as we have seen, for good reason. But what do you suppose ought to be the right response of his audience now? You're right. We've been rebellious. We are rebellious. Nevertheless, their tendency of verse 4 is going to linger. So Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. 
It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Moses has been laying out the case for Israel's rebellion in order that they might come to the point of humility. After all of this, that point will still not have sunk in. So he gives them the command, don't say in your heart, it's because of your righteousness. Um, All of his efforts, um, he's, he's mustering all of his pastoral and rhetorical efforts to bring them to humility. That is worth thinking about for a good long time. And what we should find remarkable is not only their condition and ours, which is the same tendency, but the way God responds to people like that. That's what we come to in verses 25 to 29. We're not going to make it through it. We're not even going to try. All of that to say, as Moses prostrates himself before the Lord for another 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord actually listens to him. And he doesn't execute judgment on the people. And now, if we're not careful, we will take the Lord's leniency and forgiveness as, ha, I am worth preserving. And Moses says, don't do that. Um, That's not why you're alive today, and that's not why you have the benefits. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy, entirely against your own merits. And that's, again, the gospel according to Moses. And that's the gospel we are to center ourselves on as well. Any thoughts or questions in closing here? Yeah, a lot of freedom and joy in in knowing that. Thanks, Josh. All right, God willing, I will see you next week. Thanks for joining.